Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 1st, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 25. The prophet proclaims to Judah and to Jerusalem that idolatry is foolish. It is stupid. The Lord alone is the true and living God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Hans Feeney. Pastor Feeney serves at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. What should we know about the prophet, his ministry, and his book as we get started into chapter 10 today? Well, the prophet Jeremiah uh, is speaking at a time when there is great fear and distress uh, among the people of uh, Judah. So um, a while before the northern kingdom has been destroyed by the Assyrians, uh, but then during the time of Jeremiah, you have the destruction that comes at the hands of the Babylonians. And um, so you have kind of everything leading up to that and then the dismay and, and the fear afterwards. So a lot of this is covered in the, in the prophet Jeremiah. And so what you have uh, today is Jeremiah basically speaking about how um, theologically, but also kind of in a sense, psychologically, the people need to not lose themselves and not forget who they are in all of this, that that as they are exposed to the powers of the pagan nations, that they need to remember that um, that all of the the kind of fireworks and explosions uh, that these that these foreigners who worship foreign gods have, that that's not actually evidence that their gods are real or something to be feared, that they're that the power of the nations is but an illusion and that the true power lies in the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God that they served, the God they were to serve, the God who made a covenant with them. And, and yet the covenant that they have broken uh, which is why they are they are facing this this chastisement uh, from the Lord. One of the features of Jeremiah chapter ten is this mockery of idolatry. You might might call it satire, which I, I think you know a little bit about, Pastor. Feeney. A little bit, sure. a little bit. And satire is not is not unusual in the Bible. We see this in other places, particularly when it comes to idolatry. The Bible likes to make fun of idolatry. It likes to outright mock it. What's the purpose of satire and mockery that we see in the scriptures like we will today? Yeah, well, I think it's especially what you see in Jeremiah here, um, but you see this also with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that um, you know during Elijah's day, there's this appearance uh, that that Baal is the is the true powerful god because he's the one who's running the show. He's he's the god that is worshipped by Jezebel, who's the the princess or the queen of the area at the time, uh, and the people of Israel have been entire almost entirely led astray by the worship of Baal. So uh, Elijah basically challenges the prophets of Baal to a, a sacrifice off and highlights the fact that he can call down the power of his God to do great and wonderful works, and they can't. 
uh, and he he mocks their God when he doesn't show up to light their sacrifice and, and asks if their God is too busy off going to the bathroom uh, to be able to listen to their cries for uh, for assistance. So that there's in, in particular in this concept and you see this probably really in, in many ways in the ministry of Jesus as well with his mockery of the Pharisees is that um, mockery is a great way to show that something is not to be feared. Uh, that when you can mock something and ridicule something, you're showing that it doesn't have any real power. And this is, uh, for for example, uh, during the, the the Trump presidency, uh, I certainly won't weigh into the into the politics of that. But one of the things that I found to be rather ridiculous about that was um, people. Uh, repeatedly asserting that Trump was no different than, um, you know, Hitler or, or some communist dictator. Uh, and, and you're kind of going, well, yeah, but if you can say that on the Internet and not worry that your head is going to get chopped off, that he's, he's, he's probably not. Right. So when you when you're able to mock people, it shows that they don't have uh, the power that they are believed to have. And uh, that's something certainly that we see going on here in Jeremiah is that um, when when the when the perception is that the gods of the Babylonians are strong and powerful because these are the people who have who have conquered you and destroyed your people, uh, satire is, is employed or sarcasm is employed, mockery is employed to show that they really are nothing, that they have no power to hurt you, that what you actually need to fear is you need to fear your God, the one who allowed the Babylonians, who raised up the Babylonians and allowed them to destroy you in order to call you to repentance. With that, I appreciate what you said there, that mockery shows that something isn't to be feared. If I can make fun of it, then I know that I don't need to be afraid of it. I've, I've thought about this, and this is a maybe a slight detour, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, that when we won't make fun of something, when we refuse to mock something, that that might be a sign that we're starting to set that up as an idol. Almost Is that kind of the converse of what you've said? Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think the um, what you generally find in any society is that the things that people hold most sacred are the things that you're not allowed to make fun of. Um, the things that are that are deemed to be sort of too sacred uh, to be mocked. So, um, you know, so it shows a lot of uh, a lot of American idolatry when you when you look at that, the idea that um, you know, so for example, on again going back to the politics without wading into politics, um, you know, in, in American leftist politics, um, you have you know, protected, marginalized groups that you're not allowed to mock. You're not allowed to mock people of a certain uh, sexual preference and things of that nature, because that's um, because uh, praising. Uh, defending defending the marginalized is kind of the chief work of righteousness in in American leftist thinking. Uh, so that's the sacred thing that you're not allowed to mock. Uh, whereas it, you know in in kind of stereotypical uh, right wing culture where you oftentimes have this kind of um, uh, surge in nationalistic uh, thinking uh, that that the flag is something that that can't be mocked because the flag is sacred. So you can you can you can mock church culture, you can mock God, you can mock uh, any any aspect of religious culture. But uh, the idea that you would actually mock the flag, that's, you know, people gave their lives for that. So that's something that's far too far too holy to mock. So when we hold things up, when we present things as being above mockery, that what we're uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we realize it or not, what we're signaling to people is that these are actually the most sacred things that we have. 
So Jeremiah is going to hold up for the people of Judah and Jerusalem idols is as mockery today. And I think it, it just as I'm listening to you, there's going to be a dual purpose for this in Jeremiah. On the one hand, as he preaches it to the people who are listening to him at the time, it serves as a call to repentance, to realize how foolish their current idolatry is. And also at the same time, when the people go into exile eventually and they have the words of Jeremiah in this book, they'll have a defense against the idolatry that's rampant there in Babylon to see that what has happened isn't a conquering of the Lord somehow, but in fact, the Lord still reigns and the idols of Babylon are just as worthless as the idols that Israel had worshipped when they were in the promised land before the exile. Yeah, that um, there's kind of a psychology to to calling people to repentance um, and that, that where you recognize that you have the sin that you need to address and you need to call people to repentance for the sin that they've actually committed. But you also need to understand oftentimes the reason why someone has committed the sin so you can understand how to call them back from it. And one of those things is a major factor of that is fear. Right. So that when when people are afraid, they do stupid things. Uh, you know, this is why um, I was talking with some friends yesterday. We went to go see the, the the movie A Quiet Place Part Two, which was pretty good. But it still had the kind of the trope of people in a horror movie doing stupid things that put them in danger. And I was joking about how I want to one day go see a scary movie. I don't mind being scared. I just don't want the anxiety that comes from characters doing stupid brainless things because it makes me uncomfortable. Uh, and, but you, so you recognize that when people are afraid, they don't think clearly uh, and they make decisions that they wouldn't normally make. And they make decisions based out of just an instinctive desire to protect themselves that oftentimes is, is very short-sighted. And so you, you can see that, that kind of going on here in Jeremiah, where in chapter 10, where, where the prophet is, he's ultimately going to get to the point of you've, you've turned away from the Lord, your God, and you need to recognize that you need to return to him. But he's also recognizing that the reason people are doing this is because they are terrified of the might of Babylon. Uh, and so he, he wants to show them, the Lord is seeking to show them through the words of the prophet, that you don't, the thing that's causing you to give into idolatry uh, isn't that fear is not something that you need to have because the gods of those of these Babylonians are not real. They have no real power. Let's read a little bit from Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning at the first verse. We've got the whole chapter today, so I'll read just a little section for us to begin. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. I'll pause there. That was through verse five of the chapter. This first section, you get some of this mockery of idolatry. Jeremiah starts by just telling the people, don't learn the ways of the nations. Don't don't watch how they worship and learn from that. And then he goes on to describe their idolatry. What do we see in these first five verses, Pastor Feeney? Well, one of the things I love is is that analogy of that they're like scarecrows in a cucumber field. 
uh, that this, by the way, answers a question that I never thought to ask, which was how long have scarecrows existed, which is much longer than <laughs> uh, than you might think. Um, so people apparently figured that out pretty early. But but the the point here is that uh, you guys are are dumb birds. You're thinking like foolish crows who see some uh, man like figure standing motionless in a field. And that's enough to fill your heart with fear and to and to keep you away from the truth. Um, so that so that the, this great might of Babylon is not real. The power of their gods is not real. It's just an illusion uh, that, that they have propped up uh, through their own earthly might, which in a second can all be gone and taken away. So that the the um, the fear that that is lingering in your heart is it needs to just simply dissolve and go away. And once that happens, you can see clearly you can remember clearly who you are. And then when you remember who you are, that you are children of the living God and and sons of Abraham and, and the children of his covenant, that you can then see the Babylonians for what they are, which is uh, which is an, an empty an, an empty power. As, as we might say today, they're a paper tiger. They look they look their numbers are great on paper, but the strength is not actually really there. I, I love the the description that Jeremiah gives of the actual process of idol making. It's like he takes you into the idol factory and, and tells you right. exactly how it happens, you know, all the way from the tree being cut down. And then finally to the, the hammer and nail that fix it somewhere. So that irony of ironies, it can't move. Right. And, and that there is uh, in, in this kind of, if you take things even as sort of a step back further, it's all right. So the, these idols that you're afraid of, well, you know, these these did not descend from the heavens. They were, as you know, they were they were made by men They're They were made by some guy named Jeff, some guy, some guy named Steve <laughs> cut down a tree Patrick. and right. And some guy named Patrick, uh, uh, you know, forged some gold and put it on there. But the point on, on top of all this is also where did they get all of that stuff to build it? Where did the tree come from that they used to carve an idol? Where did the gold come from? Uh, when they harvested it from the ground, when they pulled it out of the ground and, and all of that, where did that come from? Well, that comes from the, the creation that your God actually made. They, so their gods are made from the stuff that your God himself created, that they are abusing God's creation uh, in order to, to war against him. Well, who's going to win? Who's going to win between the guys who made some gods out of uh, wood and gold versus the God who invented wood and gold. Right. I mean, it, 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 you see the, the absolute foolishness of idolatry throughout it. And just to get that very first verse that Jeremiah speaks in verse two, don't look at the, don't look at the signs of the heavens. You don't need to look up to the sky. We've seen this elsewhere in Jeremiah back in the beginning of chapter eight, the is pretty, pretty dramatic scene where the bones of the people of Judah are laid out before the sun and moon and the stars, and of course, the sun and moon and stars can't do anything for them. And and here too, don't look to the signs that are in the sky as if that can tell you something, which I think, I mean, as, as I was reading that today, I, how easy it is for us as, as Christians still, and there are certain branches of American Christianity that, that do this, they're busy looking at the newspaper usually, or the internet to see what is the latest happening around the world. And that's going to tell me something about about what's going to happen next. And it, it seems that Jeremiah's verse there in verse two has something to say to that as well. 
Yeah, that, so obviously astrology was a, a very prevalent practice in the ancient world. And, um, you know, there's there's some blessed beneficial use of it that we see, obviously, in, in the birth of Christ and the arrival of the Magi and kind of the whole mystery of how is it that they figured out, you know, from the sign in the sky and whatnot. Um, but there, but obviously, in, um, there's the the pagan nations take this far beyond the, the revelation of the word of God, so that you have this kind of constant panic. Uh, you know, so f- for example, the uh, the arrival if you saw a comet in the sky that this was seen to be some kind of harbinger of bad news or whatever that might be. So, so the nations look up and they see some astrological phenomenon. Uh, and they're filled with fear about this and they're worried about it. And and so Jeremiah here is saying, don't be fools like them. Don't let your hearts be uh, filled with fear uh, because they have brought themselves into a state of paranoia because they don't actually know the truth. You belong to the God who made the comet in the sky, who made the very stars that have arranged themselves in such a way that they're that uh, the, the pagan nations have interpreted this as a sign of panic. You worship the God who's actually created these very things, and he has already told you what you need to fear and what you don't. And you don't need to fear uh, the pagan nations. You don't need to fear the Babylonians, but you do need to fear him, and you need to repent of your sins and find peace with him again. Right. And that's where this particular section in verse five, don't be afraid of them. That's the that's the point is you don't need to be afraid of these these nations or their gods because and this is the key. They can't do anything. They can't do evil and they can't do good. You you might try to look to them for either, but ultimately they're completely impotent. They just can't do anything at all. Right. Yeah, that they're they're powerless. They're not they're not real. Right. So then the the text continues, and and Jeremiah is going to kind of go back and forth here between the foolishness of idolatry and then the wisdom of worshiping the true God. So we pick up again in verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And I'll pause there again. That was through verse 10 of Jeremiah chapter 10. Pastor Feeney, the this section begins, now Jeremiah is going to turn and say, this is who the Lord is. What does he have to say about the Lord and the true, how he is the true God in verses six and seven? Yeah, so there, uh, there's none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations, for this is your due. Um, so in all of this, so that, that phrase king of the nations is is obviously a, a great help to understand what God is proclaiming here. Is that he? So that he's obviously the king of of the Jews. He's the king of of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he he has a special relationship with them because these are the people of his covenant. But he's still the king of the nations in the sense that he created every square inch uh, of the earth's surface. 
that all people are descended from Adam and Eve uh, from his very creation. In fact, that all people are descended from from Noah uh, and his sons, the ones who, who came out of the, the ark. So that every nation belongs to the Lord. He he's the one who sends rain upon the earth. He's just as he's growing crops in Judah, he's growing crops in Babylon and he's growing crops in India uh, and the parts of the world they don't even know about at this point. So um, so that this is the Lord you worship is that he's he's the God of Israel in the sense that he belongs to the descendants of Israel. But he's the God of all nations in the sense that his power and authority uh, extend to to every corner of the earth. In Jeremiah chapter one, in, in the call of the prophet, the Lord called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations, not just to Judah, Jerusalem, to Israel, but to the to all the nations. And we've seen that already several times in the book. And I think here as well that the Lord is is king over all. And in that way, this preaching from Jeremiah that he gives to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, it also not only, again, calls them away from their own idolatry, exposes the foolishness of fearing the, the nations and their idols, but also serves a, a missionary purpose as well, that as the people of Israel do go into exile in Babylon and they hold on to the, the true faith in the one true God, that that shows the nations that their idolatry is foolish and calls them to repent from their idolatry as well. Yeah. So that's um, a fascinating thing as I was, as I was preparing uh, for this was um, in verse 11, thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That that verse is, is one of uh, only a 200 or so some uh, verses in the Bible that's in the Old Testament. It's actually written in Aramaic, which was um, uh, kind of the common empire language, a language that was spoken commonly amongst various people who had been parts of, of various empires uh, throughout the years and centuries. So that um, so and the kind of the interesting thing about that is that so that that's this is not just uh, God saying to them. Hey, here, you know, here's something that you tell yourself in the same way that, so it's, it's not God saying, you know how when you're, when you're young and you're dating someone, a girl breaks up with you and, uh, for, for another guy, you know, and your, and your mom wants to comfort you and she goes, you just go up to that girl and you tell her you're never going to meet anybody as great as me. Right. But you, of course, don't actually say that. And when your mom tells you that, she's not actually telling you to say that to the girl. She's giving you words to comfort yourself with, to speak to yourself, to remind yourself of, to, to comfort yourself. But that's not what the Lord is doing here. So the fact that these words are given in Aramaic, it seems to be a, a strong indication that this isn't just for kind of self-comfort, that you tell yourself, hey, I don't need to be afraid because the God who did not make the heaven, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall, shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens, is that this is, he's giving you the actual words to speak. Here's, here's the phrase to speak that, that this is like in Spanish class when they say, well, if you're ever, you know, uh, if you ever go to Spain or to Mexico, here's how to say, where is the bathroom in the airport? Uh, so the, the ver very practical words for you to speak. Here's the language. Here are the words that you should speak to the people of the other nations in the tongue that they are going to understand so that they know that their gods are false and that you worship the true God. This matter of which God do you fear was certainly important in those first five verses, and it continues to be important in this section as well. Jeremiah says in verse seven, who would not fear you, 
O King of the Nations? And the answer, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. But as we've been talking about this, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of Babylon and its idols. Here, Jeremiah says, you should fear the Lord, the one true God. What, what does that mean, Pastor Feeney? What is the true fear of the true God? What does that look like? Yeah, so true fear of the true God, the way I oftentimes describe what it means to fear God, right? So, so we Lutherans, uh, when we, the very first thing we learn in Martin Luther's small catechism is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And Luther's explanation of what that means is that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So when I go through that with my confirmation students, one of the questions we, we wrestle with is, what does it mean to fear God? Because obviously we know that we're, we're not afraid of God in the way that we're afraid of the boogeyman or the way that we're, you know, some people are afraid of heights or that some people are afraid of spiders. Uh, we recognize that, that, that the fear is, is not, is greater than that, but also less than that. So it's, it's a different kind of thing. And the way that I, the analogy I often use to describe the fear of God is goes back to when my oldest son was little. You know how when you have kids and you um, you're with your first kid, you have no idea what you're doing and you make all of the mistakes then. And so we made all of our mistakes about not letting him sleep through the night. And, and um, you know, we he'd cry and we'd go get him immediately and stuff like that. So we got to the point where we were just kind of forcing him to get used to sleeping through the night. And after and he was a, and he's a great kid now, but he's a stubborn baby. And, uh, he was, he just was not given up. And after about two hours of crying, I finally went in, you know, and he's in this room dark by himself. And this is kind of the first time we're making him do this. So from his perspective, his parents have abandoned him. They've left him for dead. And I go into his room and I pick him up and he clings to me. And it's just doing that like heavy heaving crying, you know, that the babies do. And in him clinging to me, I can, I realize that that's the fear of God. For the, for the Christian, for the believer, that the fear of God is recognizing that God has the power to put you back down into that pit of despair, but that he's not going to. So you cling to him, recognizing what he has the authority to do, while also at the same time trusting that, that from his word, he's not going to do it. Now, of course, the analogy breaks down and that I, I did put my son back down and make him sleep through the night. But up to that point, the analogy works uh, pretty well. So that the, the fear of God is recognizing that um, that you don't want to displease the God who has the power to melt the very earth with the with the words from his lips. But at the same time, he's promised you that he's not going to do that out of love for you, that he's going to give you his redemption through the blood of Jesus. So you want to cling to that, that that's what the fear of God is. So you don't need to be movie monster scared of the Babylonians. You don't need to be politically afraid of the Babylonians, that their power is nothing. You need to fear the one true God who has the power to tear you down and to lift you back up and who has promised to lift up all of those who turn to him. Yeah. And as, as we'll hear later in the text, he is the portion of Jacob. He's made a promise to his people. And so he is the one to fear over and against these idols of the Babylonians. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter 10 with Pastor Hans Feeney. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Our listeners and supporters are talking about Worldwide KFUO. Hello, I just want to thank KFUO for their music and the scripture reading. Just listening to KFUO brings joy and peace and hope. God bless you all. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. The Missouri Army National Guard can help you get the education you need to land the career you've always wanted. The Guard will pay up to 100% of your tuition for up to 39 credit hours per academic year at 90 colleges and tech schools across the state. You're eligible as soon as you enlist. Learn more about the many benefits that come with serving part-time in the Missouri Army National Guard. Visit NationalGuard.com today. Sponsored by the Missouri Army National Guard. Aired by the Missouri Broadcasters Association in this station. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 1st. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 25 with Pastor Hans Feeney. He's the pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, prior to the break, we had read up through verse 10 of the chapter. You also brought in verse 11, that Aramaic verse that indicates a missionary perspective that's here, something to say to the nations, to say to them that their idolatry is false, that the worship of the Lord, he is the true God. A lot of what we heard there in verses 8 through 9 and then also in 10, more of this mockery of idolatry and, again, holding up the Lord as the true God. Anything more from those verses to to pick out before we move on in the text? Well, there's, there's always more to pick out from. Uh, from sure, <laughs> that's right. Um, but that the, the, the um, I love this the second half of verse 10. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So that even the most powerful empire on earth at this point cannot stand against the wrath of the Lord. And there, there is kind of a, a strange tension here um, that where on the one hand, God allows the Babylonians to destroy his people in order to call them to repentance. But at the same time, God also condemns the Babylonians yeah. for doing the thing that he allowed them to do. Um, so there is a balance in God's uh, justice and in his and in his mercy that he he allows his people to be afflicted, but also recognizes uh, that he's uh, he, he will take the evil that is foisted upon them and use it for a good and holy purpose while also uh, punishing those who had no right to do the thing uh, that they did. Uh, and, th- and that this is um, there's kind of a beauty in God's a- approach to this, that while you should fe- you should fear the Lord because he can raise up the Babylonians, but the Babylonians should be terrified of the God you serve because he can reduce them to ashes uh, in, in a second that the most powerful empires on earth uh, cannot stand against the wrath of the Lord. I mean, that that question of how can the Lord take a nation like the Babylonians or the Assyrians before them and use them to destroy his own people in the way that he allowed is a question that is taken up by the prophets. The, the prophet Habakkuk, who's a contemporary of Jeremiah, deals with that very question when, when he asks about it. And and as you said, I mean, later in the book of Jeremiah, there's going to be judgment spoken against Babylon. So even as we see right. the Lord in history take these nations and use them to execute judgment upon his own people, those nations still stand under that same judgment as well. I mean, and I guess it reminds me of, of the way Paul talks in the in the opening chapters of the book of Romans, where he just lays out that that everyone, Jew and Gentile, like they're all under the condemnation that the law speaks. 
so that God then can speak the gospel to all as well. Right. So let's keep reading here in Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm going to read verse 11 and, and a little bit farther as well. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Right, that was through verse 16. And that really does, there, there's a pretty big change in what happens in verse 17. So we're still talking the foolishness of idolatry, the wisdom of worshiping the true God here, Pastor Feeney. One of the things that stands out to me in these verses as Jeremiah speaks concerning the Lord is he, he really emphasizes the fact that the Lord, he's the one who created everything and who still sustains and controls everything in creation. And that really sets him apart from the idols of the nations. Yeah, that um, I love that verse, by the way, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Uh, that's a good Bible verse to quote uh, all the time. You shouldn't, though, you shouldn't quote it when you're doing the whole Homer Simpson, everyone is stupid, but me uh, type of thing. But nonetheless, it is a biblical principle that every man is stupid and without knowledge. Now, of course, the, the point of that. Uh, is that they is is not simply that just that people are not intelligent and that they can't figure out problems, you know, that they can't they don't know how to build bridges uh, or swim. That's obviously not the point that, uh, that God is making here. But the point he's making is that uh, religiously, theologically, the people of this world have no idea what they're doing. They're grasping around in the darkness, trying to figure out who God is. This is, you know, again, a point that Paul is making makes in Romans one that they they turn away from the creator and they start worshiping the creation because they're fools and they they don't they have no knowledge of who God is but the children of Jacob do the children of Israel know who God is because he's revealed himself to them through the words uh, of the prophets and on account of that he's revealing his people that despite all of the might and power uh, that the Babylonians, theologically speaking, are morons. They're dopes. They don't know anything. So you don't need to be afraid of them. You don't need to be impressed by them. You need to remember instead who you are, that despite your weakness, despite uh, your vulnerability, that you belong to the God who is strong and who is invulnerable. Right. This is the God who, in verse 12, made the earth by his power, established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. So there's the, the creative act of God. Verse 13, his sustaining act, still speaking his voice. All these, these quote, natural phenomenon, those things that you might look up in the skies back in verse 2. The Lord's the one in control of that. He Again, he's the one that has power in the face of these gods who back in verse five can't do evil or good and and even more than that then verse 16 not like these is he who is the portion of jacob what that that name for god the portion of jacob why why does that show up here what is god communicating to his people there 
Well, so um, this, I imagine, goes back to uh, the whole division of the birthright and blessing of, of Jacob and Esau, right? So that, that this is the kind of the key moment of Jacob's youth is that the, uh, in the ancient world, typically speaking, um, the oldest child would get the greater share of the inheritance, which is why it was, it's a big deal uh, in, in the story of Jacob and Esau when Jacob convinces his brother to give him uh, his birthright uh, for a bowl of soup. And then the blessing later on, which he steals, which is essentially the promise that you're going to be the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. So that even though Jacob is the younger brother, that he manages to put himself into the position uh, and that God himself actually places Jacob into the position of being the older brother, of having the greater inheritance, the greater portion. So that and then so that the God of, of, of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is actually that that greater portion, in particular through through the the messianic promise, through through the promise that the Messiah is going to be your direct ancestor, or your direct whatever is the what, what's the opposite of an ancestor, the going the other direction, whatever whatever the the term descendant, is right? Your descendant. There we go. That's the term I'm looking for. Uh, so that he so that the Messiah is going to be your direct descendant. So um, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. So you who belong to the people of Jacob. Um, you are the ones who have the actual greater portion, despite the fact that, so in the same way that Esau was bigger and stronger, uh, that Jacob didn't need to fear Esau because he had the Lord. In the same way, despite the fact that Israel is smaller, despite the fact that, the, that Judah is, is less powerful than the Babylonians, they have the true God. They have the promise of the Messiah. They have the greater portion uh, of Jacob. Therefore, uh, there's no there's no need for them to fear. Well, and I think that that you know there's no need for them to fear the the gods of the Babylonians, the idols of the nations, and yet that that really ties into what you were saying before the break about the fear of the true God. That you know this one who holds all this power, who created everything in the world, and including created you. What what does he do for you? He's he's made this promise that he's your portion, and, and I mean I think that's the the sometimes the I think the term is filial fear, the fear of a son, to use the analogy that you brought up earlier again. Right. That that that's I mean, this matter that he's the portion of Jacob, this is who this God is. He's not just this far off power who's controlling things, you know, up there, but he's actually your God, the language of the Exodus, that that the Lord would be the God of the people of Israel and they would be his his people, the that back and forth. I will be your God, you will be my people. All of that is, I mean, there's, it's not just, this isn't just sort of law language, repent, but it is a, a gospel word of promise calling them back. This is who I am for you. Be my people yet again. Yeah, that there's, um, I suppose, again, but another, another analogy would be that this is like, it's like if you're a, you're a kid, right? And your father, uh, and you live in a mighty fortress, your father is a powerful king. Uh, and you live, you know, you live in some technological uh, masterpiece of a house where where no one can get in and all the doors, you know, have you know, reinforced steel. And uh, so your your father says to you, don't uh, all I'm asking of you is don't let my enemies into the house. And one day a guy with a stick in his hand comes to the door and he says, if you don't let me in, I'm going to break into the house and beat you to death with this stick. And you freak out and you let him in. <laughs> and uh, and your dad go and your father looks at you and goes, no, those. 
I'm the guy who has the house. The, the guy with the stick can't break in. That's why I told you not to let him in willingly. Uh, so that you need to re- you need to remember who you are. You need to be much more. You need to have far greater fear of the guy who's protecting you and who can keep all of your enemies at bay than you do some dope with a stick uh, who's able to who waves it around in such a way that you get freaked out and figure out that the, and, and, and conclude that the only way you can keep yourself safe is to give him what he wants. So don't don't fall for this trick. Uh, you are the portion of Jacob. You have a far greater promise. Uh, than than the pagan godless empires. You have far greater power and strength that they, that they do. You belong to the one who can already keep you safe. So stop giving into your fear and remember who it is that you actually are. As the text moves on into verse 17, there is a, a transition. Now, we're going to start talking about exile and uh, some mourning uh, as to what happens in the exile. I'll go ahead and, and read the text for us. There's a, a marked shift here. Verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes. A great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation a lair of jackals. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Jeremiah 10, 17 to 25. Pastor Feeney, what's the, what's the transition? Are we just, what's the transition between 16 through 17? Is there, are we just in a sort of a different section now and it just happens to be in one chapter or is there a logical move from the first part of this chapter to the second? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that the chapters obviously are, are uh, chapters and verses are kind of man-made things. And we generally try and uh, whoever came up with them, you know, there's kind of a long history of that. Um, so you don't necessarily always take those uh, as though they're gospel revelation, but there, there is obviously a strong connection here in the sense that Jeremiah is leading up and basically saying, don't be afraid of the people of Babylon. And and yet uh, you're still going to be torn apart by them. So so it's almost more so that what you're getting in the first half of the chapter is uh, you don't need to do this. But since you're not going to turn from your sin, this is what's going to happen anyways. And so when it does, you need to know how it is that the, that the Lord uh, responds to that, that that uh, God is going to allow the Babylonians to tear you apart in order to bring you to repentance and that this is going to grieve your Lord for this to happen to his children. But it is necessary uh, in order to not only in order to call you to repentance, but also to bring about 
God's plan of salvation, you know, so that it's this rising and falling of empires that ultimately is responsible for the gospel going out to the, to the Gentile nations, so that the Babylonians are uh, swallowed up by the Persians, uh, Persians are swallowed up by the Greeks, Greeks are swallowed up by the Romans, and then it's under that, Ro uh, under the sort of administrative structure of the Roman Empire that the gospel is able to go out uh, to the nations of the world. So that this, um, so that this is, um, this is kind of the thread here. I mean, even though Jeremiah doesn't really uh, get into it that specifically here, he's focusing more in the last half of this chapter on, on the sorrow of the people of Israel being carried into captivity. But the kind of the whole point with this is that Jeremiah is starting off in chapter 10 saying, you don't need to fear the nations of the world and their power. And God is going to show that, uh, he's going to show, show how very true that is several hundred years later with the rise of, of the gospel going out th through basically the mechanisms of these empire, these pagan empires that were uh, oppressing God's people, that God is going to use the very infrastructure that they developed uh, to be the means through which he conquers and destroys those false gods by uh, through the spread of the gospel and through the spread of faith in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, in the meantime, for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, because they have not heeded Jeremiah's call to repentance, they have held on to their idolatry. Judgment is coming. This foe from the north, as we see yet again in Jeremiah chapter 10, is going to come. Verses 17 and 18 have a, a picture of you know, gather up your bundle, take whatever belongings you have, get ready because you're, you're going to be thrown out of the land. And that's the Lord's doing. He's actually going to bring distress on you. This is, again, that, that Lord who is the one true God. He's the one that's sending you into exile. And then the, the great majority of the rest of the chapter is this, you know, the woe is me, as verse 19 says. Is that, is that Jeremiah? Is that the people of Judah as a whole? Who is the, who's the main speaker here in this section? Yeah, there. I mean, there are parts that seem a bit ambiguous, but um, it seems to be, especially from verse 20, my tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. And there is no one to spread my tent again. That it, it seems from that, that this is actually the Lord speaking about his own, the, the sorrow that he experiences from bringing this affliction to his people, that, that he built them up to be a great nation, that all the world should be blessed through them but they turned away from him. Uh, and because of that, that this is the necessary step in order to bring them to repentance. And, and yet the result of that, that his tent is destroyed uh, and that his children have gone from him uh, is a, is a profound, uh, profoundly sad thing that this is, uh, it, it's the actual version of, you know, how, when you're, when you were a kid, um, the old, the old line was, you know, uh, my parents never really did this, but, uh, I heard this, you know, in movies and stuff growing up where the parent would spank the kid and they'd go, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And you always kind of go, yeah, but does it though? Uh, does it really? And, uh, so, but this is God actually meaning that, that this, um, that this disciplining and chastisement of his children in order to bring them to repentance, reducing them to rubble, driving them out of their land so that they would, remember who they were supposed to be, uh, that this brings great sorrow to his heart. I think that you see that throughout the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, often known as the weeping prophet, laments throughout the book what's going to happen to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in that, you do see a picture of 
the Lord himself and the great sorrow that he has, for example, and then other guests have brought this up that, you know, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem before he enters into the city. And I think seeing these words here, particularly in verse in chapter 10, as, as part of seeing into the Lord's own heart, I think adds a, another layer to it, particularly the end of verse 19, where, where it says, but I said, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. Certainly, we can picture the people of Judah in repentance speaking that, and certainly Jeremiah as well. But think of that coming from the mouth of the Lord and what that means for right. him and going to the cross. Yeah, that this is um, that when when we suffer, God suffers with us, and that we we see that most profoundly uh, in in the cross of Jesus. That um, so certainly we God has brought suffering upon us because of our sins in order to bring us to repentance. But the greatest suffering of all in that whole story of mankind's sinfulness is the suffering that God Himself endures. Because out of love for us, he takes his only begotten son, who's guilty of no sin, who deserves no punishment. Uh, and he takes upon his own head the sins of the world and bears the affliction of being hated and rejected by his people, of being betrayed, being beaten, and then ultimately put to death on the cross in order to take away that condemnation. So the, he, he suffers these grievous wounds, both... Um, emotionally and and sort of theologically so the emotional wounds of being rejected and despised by your people the theological wounds uh, of being forsaken by your father but also the the physical wounds that that Jesus his flesh is torn apart upon the cross in order to restore his people in order to bring back those who have been under the power uh, of of the devil of a godless nation uh, in the form of Satan's rule over this world, that God endures this affliction of uh, that, that God, the father endures the affliction of um, giving up his only begotten son and that God, the son endures the affliction of the physical pain and torment of crucifixion in order to win salvation for the world. The chapter closes in verses 23 through 25 with what, what sounds like a, a confession and a plea for mercy there in verses 23 and, th and 24. And then 25, a prayer for judgment upon the enemies of God, kind of like we were talking about earlier, how the, you know, the Babylonians certainly bring God's judgment upon the people of Judah, and yet they too fall under God's judgment. Take us into those last couple of verses of this chapter. Sure. So uh, 23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, uh, lest you bring me to nothing. So uh, what what God is proclaiming through the prophet here, what Jeremiah is saying is, despite all of these pleas for repentance, that it is not within the nature of man to turn back to God. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that man can actually desire to be made right with God. So even if man is in some sense filled with some sense of guilt over his sins, the nature of man is to try to earn his way back into the arms of God, uh, to, to do something, to, to justify himself through his works, which itself is a rejection of the gospel and is therefore a rejection of God himself. That if you reject the free salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus, you're rejecting the true God. If you reject that free gift in order to try to earn your way back into the arms of God, you haven't actually returned to him 
um, you've just sinned against him and departed from him in, in a different direction. And so, so the prophet is basically saying here, look, I've made this plea to repentance, but in the end, I recognize that it's not within your nature to hear that. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and clearly God has, um, has not done the work that he deems necessary in order to grant the Holy Spirit who will call you to repentance. So, uh, so at this point, um, he's pleading out for that. So verse 24, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So, so correct me, bring me to repentance, restore me to the truth. Give me the punishment that I deserve through your correction, but do it according to your justice in order that your, your promises might be fulfilled. Don't tear me apart just because you're angry at me, but tear me apart with a purpose in order that through that discipline, I can realize that I'm nothing without you, that, um, that I'll no longer reject the proclamation of the Holy Spirit, uh, but will instead, uh, embrace that uh, proclamation and come to true faith and repentance in you. So, I mean, in that way, verses 23 and 24 sound like it's, it's almost like a, it's a prayer from Jeremiah asking the Lord, let the Babylonian exile do what you intend. Let that right. be the, the correction that prevents us from eternal destruction. Let that correction bring us to repentance now so that you don't have to send us to eternal condemnation. Yeah, that it's that it's like if you're, uh, you know, a, a medic on a Civil War field and uh, you cut off a guy's leg that has gangrene so that it doesn't continue spreading through the rest of the body. Um, so what that's what Jeremiah is asking for. He's saying is that it's like coming across an enemy soldier. Right. So cut off his gang, cut off our gangrenous leg, but don't just hack us to pieces because you're angry at us. Use your chastisement for a good and holy purpose, which is to restore us, uh, not to, not to have us, um, you know, they're, they're at the end of, at the end of the chapter here in verse 25, right? So they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. So that's what the Babylonians want to do. The Babylonians want to destroy us and see us as enemies to be eternally subjected. But you, O oh Lord, see us as your children who need to have their legs broken so that they won't wander from you anymore and wander into the pit of death. That it's, it's better to have a broken leg and to live uh, in the arms of your God who, who will heal you than to uh, wander off into destruction. So the Lord here is, is uh, promising through the prophet Jeremiah that while he's going to allow his people to be torn apart by the Babylonians, he's doing so for a very different reason than the Babylonians. Uh, that the Babylonians want to destroy their enemies. They want to conquer the world for the purposes of their own, uh, for the purposes of their own sin, uh, sinful desire for glory. But the Lord is going to conquer the world uh, in order to redeem and save the world through the blood of Jesus. Pastor Feeney, with just two minutes left here on the morning, we've talked about a lot of topics here in Jeremiah chapter 10. Help us to summarize this text, point us to Christ crucified and risen for us. Yeah, so in the end, it, it is the summary of it really is don't be afraid of the enemies of God who threaten and harass you uh, because they can't actually hurt you. When you have been afraid, when you've given into sin, when you have turned away from your God, remember who you are. Remember that while the Lord may allow affliction to come upon you, that he has borne the greater affliction 
by sending his only begotten son to die for your sins. So that uh, don't give in to your fear. Don't fear the idols uh, of this world. But when you've torn yourself apart through your condemnation, remember that those who threaten to persecute you and harm you are nothing because they because you belong to the true God. That's the one who cre- that's the God who created you. That's the God who claimed you as his own. Uh, in the instance of Christians, that's the God who's claimed you as his own through the waters of holy baptism. So you are baptized. Remember who you are. And therefore, in all of that, in that baptismal identity, remember that the Lord your God is not going to discipline you to the point of destruction, but he's going to discipline you to the point of repentance, that you may find peace with him and his kingdom forever through the forgiving and saving blood of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Pastor Hans Feeney is pastor at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Feeney, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. We'd love to hear from you here on Sharper Iron. You can send an email with any questions or comments to KFUO at kfuo.org. You can also download the KFUO app and use the open mic feature to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you with your questions, your comments, your feedback. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.